American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. This talk was given to New York City teachers as part of a professional development seminar. Uh, well, thank you. Let me uh, begin with this uh, photograph. I'd ask you to kind of uh, look at this iconic image by Alfred Stieglitz called The Steerage. Uh, he took it in 1907. And uh, it, more than any other image, has come to represent the great drama of immigration in which 12 million Europeans traveled across the Atlantic uh, between 1880 and 1924 to make new lives in America. Uh, and I'd like to for you to take a few moments to, uh, uh, to look closely, to uh, think about what you see, what you think, what you feel, and um, how we can interrogate this photo as a, as a document. If you're like me, you see you know, men, women, children you know, aboard ship, uh, dressed in old country shawls, babushkas, uh, working men's caps, uh, boaters, uh, derbies. Uh, they all have kind of a grave bearing, patient, dignified, perhaps anxious about landing on Ellis Island, embarking on a new life. Perhaps there's a sense of grief about leaving uh, their old life, mothers and fathers that they'll never see again. Uh, so part of this exercise for, for me, for students, is to sort of uh, really uh, call attention to the d distinction between uh, observations and inferences. And, and so you see you sort of blend seamlessly into making comments about what you see and then, and then inferring various things. There's only so much you can know by, by just looking. Uh, where's this ship headed, for example? Do we know? To America, we presume, but in fact, it's not. It's headed back to Europe. Uh, Stieglitz uh, boarded it in New York Harbor. He took this photo either at sea or, judging from the lack of breeze, uh, perhaps uh, in the harbor at uh, Liverpool. Uh, so its passengers are those who, for one reason or, or another, have had enough of America. Uh, the, perhaps they're being sent home because of ill health, insufficient uh, finances, anarchistic leanings. But really, only 2% of uh, Ellis Island immigrants were denied entry. So it's more likely that they're returning home voluntarily. Stieglitz was no documentary photographer. He wasn't trying to document this phenomenon of reverse migration. In fact, uh, he uh, was captivated mainly by the composition of the scene. Uh, here's his account of what inspired him that day. A round straw hat, can you see it? The funnel leaning left, the stairway leaning right, the white drawbridge with its railing made of circular chains, white suspenders crossing on the back of a man in the steerage below, round shapes of iron machinery, a mast cutting into the sky, making a triangular shape. I saw shapes related to each other. I saw a picture of shapes underlying that, the feeling I had about life. So many art historians regard this picture as the first modernist photograph. Picasso praised uh, the collage-like dispersal of forms uh, and the shifting depths. I like it because it reminds me that much of what uh, you know, we think we know about immigration in this period uh, is wrong. Let's look at this uh, chart on uh, return migration. 
So notice that the first half, the first nine groups, uh, only between 5 and, say, 25 percent uh, return home. Here we have Jews, the smallest number, because no one wanted to go back to pogroms and persecution. Notice how the numbers uh, grow among the next nine groups at the bottom, uh, from between 40 uh, and 66 percent. That's quite a bit. Two out of five Poles go back home. Two out of five. More than half of the Italians go back home. It's a wonder I'm even standing here. Uh, by all odds, my grandparents, uh, who arrived separately around 1917, should have returned uh, to Marsala, Sicily. World War I may have uh, had something to do with that decision. Uh, maybe the good fishing they found in Boston and later Monterey. If we charted these statistics by year, we would definitely see an influence of war in Europe and uh, depression in America on people's decision to return. Uh, many, of course, never intended to stay. Uh, they came to work, they came to make some money, and go back home. So these statistics seem to contradict conventional wisdom about immigration during what's often called the Ellis Island period. What I want to argue today is that Ellis Island is more than a place, it's more than a period, it is a paradigm. By that I mean it acts like a, a prism, providing a certain orientation, a certain angle of vision. It offers one valuable way of seeing and interpreting a, a very complex historical process. The Ellis Island paradigm, long dominant in immigration history, holds that the central story is one of assimilation. Foreigners coming to these shores, being processed, usually quickly and painlessly, through the federal bureaucracy and melting within a generation or two into the mainstream of American society and culture. That is the Ellis Island paradigm, also called the immigrant assimilation paradigm. Well, that's basically what happened, you might say. What's wrong with that? Uh, that's certainly the story of, of my family. Uh, here is the ship that uh, some of my relatives, S.S. Kretik, some of my relatives came, my grandmother, great-grandmother, my eldest aunts and uncles, sailed from Palermo to New York. Here's the, uh, the manifest, all available through Ancestry.com. I didn't get this, my, my cousin got this. But there you see Agatha DiGirolamo, my aunt, my aunt Katie, Antonio DiGirolamo, my uncle Tony, and then the Pavia, my grandmother and her mother. And so th that's their story. Here, some more to get personal, here's uh, picture of my father and his two brothers uh, growing up in Somerville, Massachusetts, a, a, a place, a ghetto, immigrant, working class ghetto that was as densely populated as the Lower East Side in New York. This is the restaurant, Angelo's, that they bought in uh, Monterey. They moved to Monterey for the fishing uh, in, the, in the 30s. And uh, there's a big party they're having for my, my great grandparents. And then there are my, my cousins, their offspring, right? You know, <laughs> they don't speak a word of Italian. They don't think Italian, uh, but they're showing their, their new fish hook tattoos. So there, there is that fishing uh, link. So there's the American dream, right? We come, we, we prosper, and we, we become Americans. What's wrong with the Ellis Island paradigm is that it is partial. It does not readily uh, admit of alternative narrative. In other words, it's become hegemonic. It has become the one and only story of American immigration ignoring uh, or marginalizing the experience of all those who don't quite fit into this narrative. 
So the Ellis Island uh, that you'll visit tomorrow is presented by the Park Service as America's Gate. Uh, it is one of America's gates. It received 80% of all immigrants during this period, but there were more than two dozen other ports and points of entry, including Boston, Baltimore, Philadelphia, New Orleans, San Francisco, as you know, uh, and El Paso. The story of American immigration and identity, uh, even in the Ellis Island period, is a lot more complex than the Ellis Island immigrant assimilation model shows or allows. So I thought what I would do this, this morning is not so much give you a lot of facts about this amazing place, but try to put the place in a historiographical perspective and perhaps give you some idea about how to open up the subject with your own students, to avoid a kind of self-congratulatory narrative uh, about an open society with open borders and uh, immigration history is a kind of filial piety, paying homage, paying respect to our, to our fathers and mothers, our forefathers and foremothers. Uh, it can be that to some degree. It should be that because it was an extraordinary absorption of many of the world's uh, peoples. Uh, but it should be more because if your students are like mine, and I think they, they are, if not the same, one of the same students, uh, very few of these students can trace their, their ancestry back to Europe, back to Ellis Island and this, this period. So here's my little outline if you, uh, I'm going to move on this. So I've already, I've already uh, made the first point that many of these immigrants went back. The Ellis Island paradigm doesn't really talk about them. This is the, the, the missing birds of passage, if you will. Birds of passage was a name for the, those who never really intended to stay. They came as migrant laborers. Okay, so, so the assimilation come, make new lives. Uh, they don't fit that, that model. Uh, the second thing that the paradigm ignores is the whole question of, of race. And here I'm in the, the strangers uh, in the sieve. Now, the majority of uh, the people who passed through Ellis Island were from Europe. And here we have Annie Moore, the first immigrant processed through Ellis Island in 1892, when she was a rosy-cheeked lass of 15 from Cork County, Ireland. Uh, she received uh, a $10 gold piece from Colonel Jean-Baptiste uh, Weber, the first com commissioner of Ellis Island, a Civil War veteran, and an immigrant himself from Alsace-Lorraine. So they were Germans, uh, Scandinavians, Irish, uh, but also Jews, Italians, Slovaks. People commonly uh, regarded the latter group in particular, as made of inferior clay. Okay? Immigrant uh, restrictionists saw them primarily as non-Anglo-Saxons who were diluting the gene pool. They were introducing intellectually bankrupt ideas like Judaism, like Catholicism, and modern bankrupt ideas like communism and anarchism. And they were not compatible with the American experiment in liberal democracy and free market capitalism these mainly Southern and Eastern European immigrants. So this character we have here, depicted in The Stranger at Our Gate, is the restrictionist's worst nightmare, right? A short, sickly, ragged, pathetic man carrying one bag labeled poverty, the other labeled disease. Uh, around his neck hangs the bone labeled superstition. On his back, the, the beer keg uh, uh, with the word Sabbath desecration. And, uh, and then a crude bomb labeled anarchy. Uh, Uncle Sam, of course, decked out in his red, white, and blue uh, regalia, is holding his nose. And the, the, the caption of this says, can I come in, you know, the immigrant asks. And Uncle Sam says, I suppose you can. There's no law to keep you out. So this is a, a, a restrictionist view 
circa 1896. As in the case with most political cartoons, uh, its sentiments were more exaggerated than accurate. Congress was creating laws to exclude immigrants for a variety of reasons. Here are some of the restricted classes it kept uh, a building. Uh, some Asian women, Chinese laborers, uh, lunatics, people likely to become public charges, convicts, contract laborers, uh, lonesome and, and dangerous and contagious diseases. These were all very loose categories which gave a lot of leeway to the inspectors and to the, uh, the people on Ellis Island. Physical disability, for example. Inability to uh, likely to become a public charge. My grandfather, who didn't come through Ellis Island, he either came through Boston or he, or he snuck in, was four foot eight. So being four foot eight was grounds for denial as a man because you're not, you're not, you're not big enough, strong enough to, to uh, uh, necessarily support uh, yourself and your family. He had 13 children. He supported himself as a fisherman his whole life. But, but, but they could use that as, a, as, a, as an arbitrary indicator of likely to become a public charge. So the other, the other thing that was quite, uh, of all of these things, the, uh, the likely to become a public charge was the most commonly invoked grounds to forbid people from coming in. And 610,000 people were turned away. And, and of those, 219,000 were deemed likely to become public charges. Okay. So this is, this is a, a big catch-all category. And it created a lot of, if you didn't have enough money, you learned about that. If you didn't have enough money, you would, you know, when you landed, you would likely become a public charge. So that was another grounds. So this created quite a, a, a stir because it wasn't, it, the criteria weren't applied sort of equally across the board. Southern Eastern Europeans were more often deemed likely to become public charges. And what happened is that the commissioner of Ellis Island, William Williams, he was a Wall Street lawyer. He was appointed by Theodore Roosevelt. And Theodore Roosevelt was a great politician. He, he really invoked the whole tradition of the open borders for his constituents, for the Germans, for the, for the uh, Italians, the Jews, the Irish. Yes, we have to keep this open. But he himself was, was quite worried about diluting the race, if you will. And so he appointed, he appointed uh, William Williams, a, a WASP, uh, New England, restrictionist in charge of Ellis Island. So he's kind of hedging his bets. And so there were a lot of people being turned away, a lot of ethnic leaders, a lot of uh, uh, community groups, ethnic newspapers were, were protesting this. And even ordinary people. Here is a, a, a letter written by anonymous student PS62 in New York on the Lower East Side. You don't realize what you're doing, he wrote to Williams. Uh, you kill people without a knife. Does money make you a person? A person who has a mind and hands and has not $25 cash, is not a person? Has he to be killed? Here is the free America. People, how much do they suffer until they come here? If you would have conscience in you, would not do such things. You think that they are not people, but animals. I don't see what do foreigners do harm. Okay, so this is uh, New York City high school students registering his protest. It really reminds me of the role that young people today play in, in, in some of these public debates. Okay, so Ellis Island was this great sieve where officials would separate the desirable from the undesirable. And uh, the laws established these categories of, of exclusion. But as I say, it was up to officials to enforce those laws as they saw fit. Uh, the first sifting occurred in the inspection line in which thousands of immigrants a day would march toward a medical officer 
who in just a matter of seconds would make a decision based on his observation of their scalp, face, neck, hands, walk, the overall mental, physical condition. Uh, then the immigrant would make a right turn in front of uh, uh, the doctor that allowed a, a rear or side view. Uh, this guy would touch the immigrants, feeling for muscular development, fever perhaps. He might ask a few questions. After 1905, all the immigrants had to go pass before an eye specialist. And they had this kind of crochet hook, as you can see in the picture, where they would look under the eye to, to look for trachoma and look for eye diseases. If any of these medical officials found any sign of possible deficiency, they would chalk, use chalk to mark the immigrant with the letter L for lameness, right? Uh, e for eye problem, H for heart problem, PG for pregnant. And then for mental, suspected mental defects, an X. And for definite mental defects, an X with a circle, okay? About 15 to 20 percent of arrivals would receive some mark to be set uh, aside for further uh, physical or mental testing. These are photographs taken by the island's resident psychiatrist, Dr. Eugene Mullen. Uh, notice the, the captions. Uh, these are not sort of random slurs, uh, but scientific terms. Low-grade imbecile, age 11 years old. Low moron, age 30 years old. Irritability and surliness, uh, the firm mouth and earnestness of expression suggests combativeness. Well, certainly. Uh, and then the little girl on the bottom, advanced juvenile pyretic, expression of apprehensiveness. Uh, the facial expression suggests feeble-mindedness. Okay, so they are using their trained eyes to kind of root out who is uh, deficient. And, and, and feeble-minded was like the general term. Uh, but moron wasn't just, you know, the name, the bad name you call your idiot neighbor or brother, right? It, that moron was a person uh, with a mental age of eight, between 8 and 12 years old. Imbecile was a person with a mental age between 3 and 7. And idiot, I just used generically, was someone with a mental age below 3 years old. So these were the terms that were applied very systematically. Keep in mind, too, that uh, most Americans, many Americans, considered poverty, considered disease, considered even illiteracy to be hereditary traits that would be passed on from generation to generation. So that's the imperative to, to let, not let these people in. So there we see some of the process, some of the real questions, some of the real games that they had people play, and, and some of the hurdles that, that European immigrants had to jump through. Nevertheless, compared to people of color, Africans, Asians, Mexicans, Europeans had a much greater capacity to blend, to become educated, to intermarry, to modify their old world beliefs. In short, to become American. Uh, the European-centered Ellis Island assimilation paradigm ignores the fact that America has always been a profoundly multicultural place, a nation of peoples far more diverse than the model has room for. Uh, the paradigm implicitly suggests that the experiences of these other non-white groups throughout American his history constitute uh, variations on a theme set by European immigrants, rather than fundamentally different experiences. Take African Americans, and we have a picture up in the upper left. The Ellis Island interpretation refuses to treat Africans as part of the history of migration to North America at all, partly because they do not fit what's known as the escalator model. Come, work hard, join the professional and comfortable classes. Some historians have tried to put African Americans 
in this uh, escalator model, arguing that their rise didn't begin until after emancipation, like these exodusters, uh, southern freed people who moved west during Reconstruction. African slaves and their descendants were, in fact, forced migrants who underwent processes that were in some ways very similar to those of other immigrant groups and in some ways profoundly different. Uh, but their history, their experience, is something to, to be dealt with uh, separately under the Ellis Island paradigm. We can question that. Uh, nor does the paradigm deal with such non-European immigrants as Chinese and Japanese. If Asians uh, are included in the traditional interpretation at all, they're regarded as part of uh, the new immigration, more foreign culturally, more difficult to assimilate than the old immigrants. How is it then that 230,000 Chinese came to the United States during the period of the old immigration, 1840s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and only half of that number during the period of the, the new immigrants, 1880s to 1920s? The Ellis Island paradigm has no answer. We know that the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 accomplished this winnowing down. The old new dichotomy, which I'll critique later, presumes that immigrants were European. And the Chinese who came in the era of the old, the Japanese who came in the early 20th century, they're treated as exotic exceptions. Uh, when they're not written off altogether as, as immigrants. They're, they're sojourners. They never in intended to stay. So we don't even have to deal with them. Easily marginalized. Mexicans, here we have a picture of Mexican immigrants uh, near Chicago, 1917. The Ellis Island immigrant assimilation model likewise cannot deal well with Mexican-Americans. Uh, it insists on treating Mexicans as recent immigrants, uh, when many are not immigrants at all, but rather the descendants of people who lived in the lands of the United States that the United States conquered and took over. In effect, the border crossed them. Uh, others came later, but still have lived in the United States for generations yet the Ellis Island model treats them as recently arrived aliens. Moreover, the paradigm also posits a long distance between uh, the country of origin and the United States, and with little ongoing contact. You, you leave Sicily and you write letters, you write letters, but you never go back, you never see people, and it's, it's a real demarcation. Uh, the old country's left behind, the new country's embraced. Many Mexican and other Western Hemisphere immigrants, uh, by contrast, maintain ongoing uh, connection with their ancestral homelands, even as they have been full Americans. So these other people of color are sort of, uh, don't quite fit into the, the dominant Ellis Island paradigm. The paradigm, this pr prism, this perspective, also prevents us from noticing how European immigration had consequences not just for the immigrants uh, and mainstream society, but for native peoples. Uh, who inhabited the land before them. Right? The famous closing of the frontier, uh, declared by historian Frederick Jackson Turner in 1892, because the latest US census had showed that the population in the western states had, had grown sufficiently. It coincided, of course, with the opening of Ellis Island. Millions of foreign-born headed west, populated the areas, worked the mines, the farms, you know, in the mountain west and the southwest, helping to build the country develop the natural resources to occupy the land once belonging to Indians. Uh, they made up a good number of the, of the people who took, 50,000 people who took part in the Oklahoma land rush of 1889, another 100,000 in the land rush of 1893, right? This mass transfer of unassigned lands that had not long ago belonged to the Cherokee, the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, other Indians. That too is part of the story of immigration, uh, but not one that the Ellis Island paradigm 
invites exploration of. Two more points to make. The Ellis Island version, uh, this is sort of the myth of the new, the new immigrants, of immigration history, also treats English Americans as the quintessential natives, right? Not as immigrants. It ignores the fact that tens of thousands of English people kept coming to the United States each year throughout the supposed periods of the old and new immigration. And if we look at this table, immigrant by origin, leading sending countries 1871 to 1930, we do see Italy with the leading provider of people with 4.6 million, Austria-Hungary and 4.1 million, right? But Germany, the old, old immigrants who peaked in the, in the 1840s and the 50s, they're still coming in big numbers. Britain, 2.8 million from Britain. Scandinavia, 2.2 million. So these so-called old immigrants, German, British, Scandinavians, came in record numbers. Indeed, more than twice as many migrants came to the U.S. from Britain in the 1880s alone than came from all Europe and during the colonial era. Uh, so again, just our, our handy sort of dichotomy, this is the old wave. Immigra immigration comes in two different ways, and, and, and even that we should question. Finally, I think the, uh, I want to get at the, the poverty of the push-pull factors as, as explanations for, uh, for immigration. Basically, the Ellis Island paradigm, I think, promotes the fiction that immigrants left their homeland and continue to leave their homeland due to a combination of push-pull factors. This explanation is very easy to teach, right? We can write it on the board, push-pull, we draw a line in the middle, and then we start asking our students uh, to name various factors, right? There's war, there's poverty, there's religious persecution pushing them out of the old country peace, opportunity, religious freedom, drawing them to the United States. So this is a useful exercise, but not sufficient for two reasons. First, because contrary to the immigration assimilation model, the Ellis Island model, uh, most immigrants did not make one fateful cost-benefit analysis and forever cut their ties with their home countries. For almost every immigrant group, there has been a, a going and a coming, a continuing connectedness with the homeland. And we can see that in the Italian villages where these aging residents are called the Americani. You know, these are people who went to America in their youth and they still have some language and they still tell the nieces and nephews stories about New York and, and all that. These are the people in Steiglitz uh, photographs. Uh, they're, they're there. We see this in the American Southwest, Mexican Americans migrating back and forth seasonally across the border even before there was a, a border. They mix farming, herding, craft work with wage labor in the United States. So, no cutoff point, there's no push-pull factors, and, and then we make the decision. Uh, we see the Chinese Americans as well in Hawaii, in California, uh, working for years, going back home to get married, uh, sire children, then returning to work, their families existing simultaneously on both sides of the Pacific. And it, it goes on today, too, with Skype and the internet, and people migrate, but they don't quite, uh, th there's a lot of back and forth. So this, this Breaking up the decisions and push-pull factors is, is a little over, overrated. Secondly, the simple push-pull dichotomy is wanting because it does not begin to explore how those factors are related. It's not just you know, two different sides of the ledger, but they are themselves products of a global capitalist economy that has linked sending places and receiving places uh, since the mid-19th century. And we can see that, for example, 19th century uh, Britain, industrializing Britain, seeking foreign markets for their industrial products. They provoked two opium wars with China. 
which weakens China, leads to an encroachment on Chinese sovereignty by other European countries and the United States. This leads to rebellion. This leads to warlordism, driving peasants off the land, uh, some of whom come to America to mine gold and to work on railroads. Okay, so, so the push-pull factors are all of a piece, part of this global capitalism. Same argument could be made in Europe, where we see also you know, Europeans coming for jobs. Why jobs? Why do they need jobs? What's wrong with just uh, living where they were? Because that, their villages, their, their countries are being brought into this cash nexus. They, can, they, they owe their village bankers and merchants uh, uh, cash. Those people own, owe cash to, uh, owe, owe debts to people with their counterparts in Chicago and New York. And so peasants were getting thrown off the land in rural Poland, Ireland, Mississippi. And uh, small family farms had to raise cash crops, compete against these large consolidated farms, which was a losing proposition. Uh, so many uh, farmers became migrants. So this, uh, they moved from countryside, they moved from Marsala, Sicily, to Palermo, to Boston, to Monterey. All right, migration itself is a capitalist strategy. So the simple push-pull paradigm doesn't begin to capture the complexity of transnational diasporas or show how the pathways of migration are also pathways of trade, which are themselves products of colonial economic and political uh, connections. And this, this same sort of view can also be applied to other immigrant groups, the Philippine, Filipinos with the Philippine War, the Vietnam more recently, and no doubt in the future with uh, Iraqis, Afghanis, the Libyans, who are sure to, to come here. If we know anything, we know that war creates refugees, war creates immigrants. And so uh, you heard it here first. Where does this leave us? Question is, is everyone in the world entitled to enter America? Does not a country, as a matter of sovereignty, have a right to decide who shall enter and how many? Well, yes, but this question is a little more freighted in the United States because we're talking about a self-governing people whose founding principle is equality as a human right, right? The Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yet there we were at Ellis Island deciding who was desirable and undesirable. This is still a central tension in US immigration history. Ellis Island was at the center of this debate for 30 years. Uh, that debate continues. Ellis Island itself may not be central to it anymore, but the legacy of Ellis Island and understanding uh, of the historic role it played during this era of progressive reform, the development of a, of a federal administrative state, uh, certainly is relevant to current debates. Thank you. <laughs>